Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Just to remind us, I know we're getting in this habit, but uh, church custom or of this global church, as we read the scripture reading at the end, the reader will say, this is God's word, and the church affirms that by saying, thanks be to God. And so I'll say that at the end, and then uh, we can, if you affirm that, just vocalize that as a way of encouraging and lifting up and proclaiming, this is God's word, and we are submitting to it this morning, asking the Spirit to teach us, show us something new through it. Starting in verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is God's word. Well, do want to remind you, even though we're doing this, I I will still offer Q&A afterwards. Phone number is on the screen if we've got it, um, if you have any questions on this morning's passage. But... I suspect these might be a little easier than some of the doctrinal messages. Those have been taking a lot more time um, to craft and put together and research. So, well, waiting. That's what we're looking at this morning, waiting. Jesus tells them to wait. More and more, uh, our culture... And our technological developments have alleviated us of the burden of waiting, right? Instead of waiting in lines at coffee shops or restaurants, uh, we can use the mobile app to order ahead. And so we can either even go up to the window and it's ready, or you can just walk right into Starbucks or something like that, and it's right there on the shelf. You don't even have to interact with anyone. It's right there. In some areas of the country, uh, Amazon can deliver to you within just a couple hours not even a couple days. Uh, Having worked in youth ministry for over a decade, it shocked me more and more how many students were willing to look on the internet or watch little social media clips of of movies or TV shows that they were excited about 
to see spoilers before they even uh, were able to see the TV show or movie that they anticipated watching. Sometimes even that night, they would already look online and see what happened in the new Marvel movie or what happened in the Stranger Things season or some, some cultural show or movie that was a big deal for them. They didn't want to wait to enjoy the experience firsthand, but rather, I can't wait. Now, even when we're forced to wait in line, like waiting at the grocery store or coffee shop or at Walmart or Bueller's or something like that, what do so many of us feel the urge to do rather than just wait? We pull out our phone, right? We scroll through our phones. We check our Apple Watch. We check Apple News for the 30th time today. We check our email again. We check our text messages again. We scroll through Instagram or TikTok or Facebook again. Even in our, cultural, er, in our culture and even in our rural area, patience has become a lost virtue. As the famous Tom Petty song says, the waiting is the hardest part. In our passage this morning, we see that the first thing Jesus commands the early church to do is wait. After he's resurrected, he's spending this time with them, this handful of weeks, and he tells them, wait. Now, before we walk through our passage, uh, a quick little Acts 101, a quick little introduction to Acts. Sorry to make you wait. Uh, but here we go. Uh, the author, nice little pun, you picked it up, nice. Uh, anyways, the author of the book, uh, if you're unfamiliar, the author of the book is Luke. Luke is uh, believed to be this by most scholars to be the author. The book doesn't actually say the name, but through church history, and that is just kind of the custom we've uh, grown to accept. But we don't, we can say we don't know 100% for sure, but we largely believe it is Luke. Luke who wrote also the gospel according to Luke, the biography of Jesus in your gospels. Now from one of Paul's letters, specifically Colossians 4, we know that Luke is a physician, and you might think, oh, wow, this is like a doctor doing this. Yes, it is a big deal. He's well-educated. However, in that time, doctors likely don't, they could have a very drastic range of income. So you could be a very wealthy physician, but you could also be a slave or a peasant. You, and so, depending on that time, we don't really know his social status, but that is Luke. The point is, he is well-educated, and it is pretty obvious in the way he writes compared to Matthew, Mark, and John. There's a lot of things. While it is a historical book, it's a book that has a lot of literary structure and features. It seems like he really well crafted. We know that he pulled a lot from Mark. So John Mark's gospel was first, and then we know that Luke kind of took from that. He wrote the gospel of Luke, and now Acts is his part two, his sequel to the life of Jesus. Luke is the life of Jesus, and Acts is the life of the church in light of Jesus. Now the audience is somewhat a little more open for discussion. Am I getting a lot of feedback? Are we okay? You're saying yeah? Do we have another mic that I could utilize? Or should I take a handheld? Well, while he's getting me that, the audience, yeah, is somewhat a little open for discussion. We know there's this guy named Theophilus. We have no idea who he is. There's a lot of theories. Uh, T. 
typically an endeavor like this, it seems like he's the benefactor, he's paying, he commissioned this writing, so it's likely thousands of dollars in current day to pay for a guy like Luke to go and do this investigative historic piece of work. Uh, he could also be someone who the book is simply dedicated to. It's not uncommon for writings in those days, kind of like when you open up a novel today and it's just like, to so-and-so. If you've ever wondered, sometimes you're like, who is that? Um, and then you move on. It could just be as simple as that. Uh, my, my personal favorite theory uh, is just that he is offering a defense for uh, either Paul or a group of people in the early church as he is awaiting uh, his verdict and eventual, from what we know in church history, his death sentence. So you see at the end of Acts, in Acts 28, Paul is on house arrest, awaiting trial, and that Luke potentially is offering some sort of legal defense for not only Paul, but the movement, the way of Jesus. Uh, they, call, they eventually start calling him Christians by the end of the book in a derogatory manner, but people of the way is what they are thought of, and he's offering a defense to legitimize them, to help them see they're not this radical cult that is going to overtake the empire in a physical manner, we talk about the kingdom of God a lot, and, the, and Jesus talked about it, and his people do. But no, this is something, this is a, a different type of kingdom. And so he's offering this defense. Again, these are all speculative, but um, sometimes they help us give uh, insight into potentially what's going on here. Now, it's likely written in the 70s, and not 1970s, 70s AD or ACE, depending on how you time things or CE, sorry. The purpose of this writing, twofold. There's two things that Luke's doing here. There's legal and apologetic. Like I said, it's likely a, a defense to legitimize and seek tolerance for Christianity in the Roman Empire, but it's also an apologetic. It's a defense for the faith. It's showing that these things happened. These things are not uh, just mere speculation or, or gossip or things trending on social media, if you will. No, this stuff happened. Here is evidence. He name drops people. He references people. Um, and he himself seemingly is not of Jewish descent. So this is something that he was won over to as well. We already mentioned the genre brief, briefly. It's a book of history. But yes, it's important to note that it is carefully written. It has emphasis on certain components. There's literary devices. There's things that Luke is doing. Rather than if the example I give, if you compare Luke compared to Matthew, Mark, and John, well, John's a little different, but Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark are kind of like at the end of the day around the dinner table. So you're just like, hey, what happened today? And you're kind of just telling the story in the best order you think you can. Whereas Luke really fine-tunes it and crafts it. He puts some chunks together. He summarizes some things. He, he uses some parallels and things like that. There are, there's intent. He's thought through his end-of-night dinner table summary of what happened in the day, in his day, if you will. Now, the characters are primarily Peter and then Saul slash Paul. He eventually becomes Paul. Those are the two main focus, but we do meet a lot of characters. The primary focus, though, the biggest character, if you will, is the Spirit and the Spirit empowering the church. The focus of this book is the establishment and expansion of the church, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we read it, we'll notice that while there are a few instances 
within the church that are captured, most of Acts is focused on new terrain, going somewhere else. It's kind of fascinating to think that one of the main uh, narratives or descriptions of what's the life of the church doesn't really describe much going on inside these walls, if you will. It's more a summary of, okay, yeah, we know they're there and they're dealing with life, church life, but really what's important is where they're going and who they're sending somewhere else and who, who they're raising up within this place and then saying, okay, now let's send them out. Let's support them and send them out or partnerships with other regional churches. That is the bigger focus. That is the lens, the filter that we are viewing this writing through. Uh, One of the commentators I read, uh, I. Howard Marshall, his uh, commentary on Acts is pretty helpful. He writes, mission is no mere human achievement. The gift of the Spirit are given, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are given for the purpose of mission and not for the private edification of the church or its individual members. That is what we'll see here as we start right here in Acts 1. That the Spirit comes, they're told to wait, they wait for the Spirit, but the Spirit is not meant to be this something just for us. The Spirit and the Gospel, the Kingdom, it is meant to go out. Hence the title we've placed Uh, to the ends of the earth. These are the words of Jesus that we see in verse 8. So, let's look uh, just a couple verses, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to walk through, make some comments, and give us some, uh, hopefully, some practical um, implications for us. So Luke begins by writing, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice again, uh, we've talked about this before, but taken up into heaven appears to them going up, uh, but just like back then, if they believed in some sort of afterlife, which a lot of them didn't, in particular like a Hades, uh, they would assume it going down, but we know that hell is not beneath us. It's not in this realm and so, but it is, it is God speaking to people where they're at in their human perceptions of reality. These people in this world believe the earth is flat. They actually believe there's like a dome above the sky. There's things of that sort. So heaven is up there. God ascends. It looks like that. It very well may be that. But Jesus is in the realm of God's space. Heaven is not simply just a place in the scriptures. It really is just a term for God's space or God's dimension, if you will. So if we're in 3D, God's in 4D, right? We can't see four dimension. But God's here. God's amongst us. Heaven is here. That is what the resurrection did. Colossians 2 says that Jesus broke down the wall, this barrier between us. Heaven is in our midst. There is this overlap. It is amongst us, but it's still unfolding and invading and manifesting in our midst. That is the role that the Spirit is doing in the church now and has been doing for a couple millennia. So while we may not see spiritual beings that often, or or that we're aware of, they are here. Yes, they are present. The spiritual realm is here. We believe that. We just can't always see it. Similarly, that is what heaven is. It is this 
separate space, but it is not so separate anymore. That is what the resurrection did. Luke continues, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. There it is right there. This is important. Through the Holy Spirit. This book right here is the most Holy Spirit-centric writing that we have. There's really nothing the church does without the power of the Spirit. The work they do, their following of Jesus, it is all through the power of the Spirit. Luke continues, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, this note here of just, he's giving a, a summary of just the events. Not uncommon for people to claim they have seen some sort of spiritual, extraterrestrial, some sort of supernatural appearance of someone. G Luke is saying, no, 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 this wasn't just a one-time thing. This went on for a long time. There's quite a few witnesses. It's not just that one person they saw, that says they saw one thing or like the Virgin Mary appeared in their toast you know, in South America, if you heard that one, or things of that sort. No, no, no. It's something that many people have seen, and it's been going on for weeks, 40 days to be exact. And this is Luke summarizing or recapping the end of his biography of Jesus, and he uses the term 40. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll know that 40 is a reoccurring number that God utilizes. It's a pretty significant and symbolic number. But notice, if you recall, the, gospels, uh, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, in the biographies of Jesus, how many days does Jesus get tempted in the desert before he starts his ministry? Forty. Similarly, Luke notes that forty days indicating that this was a time of preparation for the early believers. This was boot camp. God was about to do something. And he was speaking about the kingdom of God, is what he says. One thing that's important here, the kingdom is mentioned at the beginning and at the end. It's interesting, it bookends the book of Acts, both in the final days of Jesus as well as the final days of Paul. Luke notes that both figures leave their audience, just final words, explaining more and more the gospel of the kingdom, what it looks like, keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 4. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. And there's his command, to wait. Wait where they are for the promise of the Father. Don't carry forth this great commission yet. Wait. Now, does Jesus actually tell them how long they need to wait? No, right? He did as far as we can tell, he doesn't seem to say it, and it actually seems to indicate that later that he doesn't. But just as Jesus had to receive the Spirit before beginning his ministry, so too do the believers have to. If you notice, um, again, right around the temptation of, in the temptation of Jesus before he gets, uh, goes into his early ministry, uh, he receives the Spirit as well before he can start his ministry. Similarly, the church has to wait and receive the Spirit so that they can go in God's power, be witnesses, and build his church. 
That's a big deal. If Jesus had to wait for the Spirit, if Jesus needed the Spirit to carry out the work that God had for him, do you think we need the Spirit? Craig Keener writes in his commentary, his disciples must depend on God's empowerment and should not even attempt their mission without it. The Spirit is the foretaste of the kingdom and the empowerment to prepare a people for it. The Spirit thus enables the witnesses to carry on Jesus' mission after his ascension. Jesus goes on, this, he said, is what you have heard from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit from not many days from now. So they're going to receive the Spirit. I'm curious if they're wondering, what does that even mean? What does that mean to receive the Spirit, Jesus? What does that look like? Because if I'm honest, even now, I'm, I'm like, well, yeah, what does that look like to receive the Spirit? For them, they had a more visible and powerful uh, encounter in their receiving, but still. Luke goes on in verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this seems odd in light of what we just read. Luke's told us that Jesus has been giving them a crash course on the kingdom. Forty days they've been learning about the kingdom, teaching them about the kingdom of God, and what question gets asked next? What about our earthly nation? What about Israel? What about making this country a Christian country again? What about making this country your country again? Now, if you're a teacher, this scenario likely sounds familiar to you. After teaching about something all period or all week or all semester long, and your students, some of them still don't seem to get it, it could be frustrating, right? Or maybe if you're a parent, you're like, you've been working on something with your kid over and over again. We're doing this a lot right now with Rowan. Um, but you're talking about it for days, weeks. You're, you're shepherding. You're, you're trying to mold and shape and help them see things. And sometimes it's just like, man, how many times do we have to tell them this? How many times do we have to talk about this? You just kind of, I sense Jesus is like, it's not the time, guys. We said this, but... It's not for you to know. Uh, verse 7, he replies, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has, has set by his own authority. I picture Jesus as this wise character in the typical like uh, fantasy or grand stories that we love. Like Gandalf or Dumbledore or, or, or Yoda. I mean, Yoda said, Patience you must have, my young Padawan. It seems like Jesus is just like, Chill. I got this. Haven't you, haven't you, have you learned anything? You wondered what happened, what I was doing for years that I've been walking with you. You wondered what was happening that Easter weekend. Can you not just trust me? Patience. Wait. Jesus goes on in our last verse, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're told to wait. They're told that someone is coming. They're told that incredible acts will be done in and through them. 
that the kingdom will advance here as in heaven. They don't know a lot. From what we can tell, it doesn't seem like Jesus has given them a ton of details about the timing or the the way it's going to look. But maybe there's just a lot. There's there's a lot loaded into those couple's words of he spent this season with them. And yet, what do they do? How do they respond? Well, as we continue reading the book of Acts, you'll see that they do wait. They wait an extended period of time. They stopped. They stopped what they were doing. They waited in anticipation for what God would do in and through them. Why? We might be like, because Jesus said so. It's the easy answer, right? Because how many times have we been, you know, God, it seems like, has been telling us, wait. And have we been like, no, I'm good. Or I'm just going to turn that down. Why do they wait? Because the life of the Jesus follower and the life of the early church, the church as a whole, is to be entirely dependent on the Spirit. That's what Luke is getting at here. They are to wait, and that's what Jesus wants them to know. They are to wait, to be dependent, built on the rock of Jesus and moved by the power of the Spirit. To attempt to go from that place they were in without the power of the Spirit would be the end of the church. It would have stopped with them. But Jesus says, wait for the Spirit. How do you handle times of waiting? When you have to wait for something, whether it be an item you pre-ordered that you're shopping for or something you're waiting to come out, man, how do you handle that? I remember as a kid in this season, uh, October 1, it was like bang, 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 all these great times coming up when you got Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas set up, Christmas, New Year's. It was just like this anticipatory, like, shoot, I want to be a part of all this stuff. Why do we, why can't we just go to sleep and wake up and it's this day and then this day? Anticipation, waiting was a lot to endure. How do you handle it? When something you were planning on doing or enjoying just isn't going to happen or get done that day or that week, when you have to press pause or wait, how does that go for you? What kind of thoughts do you begin to think? What emotions does this evoke? in your heart? What does your body do? When you're in the middle of an important conversation and the person you're talking to is like, hey, I need to pause, I need space, I need to think, I can't keep going in this conversation, we need to come back. How do you react to that? What goes through your head and heart? Do you accept that easily? How does your body react? When you read that post from someone you know, and you just can't believe they would post that or even believe it, can you resist the urge to comment or to text or to screenshot it and send it around to start gossiping and and mocking these people? When you're unclear of what God wants from you in this season, what God's doing or what he's been doing or or if he even cares at all which path to take, whether you're in the place that God wants you to be or not, 
or maybe doubting God's plan and purpose in this season, how do you respond? Are you able to wait on God? It's okay if you're saying no. I'm horrible at every single one of these things. I'm pretty sure every example I gave you failed at in the last, like, 72 hours. I am not a very patient person. If you think I am, um, it's, yeah, it used to be much worse, but I'm, I'm fairly grown, I feel like, in this area. So how do we handle it? How do we handle it as Jesus followers, as a church? How can we respond differently? How can we, like the early church, be patient and wait on the Lord, wait on the Spirit? Well, what are a couple things we know from this passage that these Jesus followers before they took on the task of waiting? It's right there in the beginning. Luke tells us that they spent a ton of time with Jesus. And yes, they still were like, we had this encounter where they, they seemed to not totally get it. And they'll continue to have their hiccups. They'll continue to have their division. They'll continue to have fights over leadership. And, and there's racial issues that come up, ethnic issues that come up. All these different types of things that come up in this book. So they do have their hiccups. They are not perfect. They are not Jesus. But they are dependent, as Jesus was, on the Spirit. Luke tells us they spent a lot of time with Jesus. Do you think that helped them be patient? I mean, Jesus had a calling, right? He, took, he, he waited three decades to, do, to, to even start doing what he was called to do. Three decades, that's almost my entire life. I can't imagine waiting that long. That's so crazy. But over and over again, the stories of scripture, throughout the scriptures show God's people being forced to sometimes, but ultimately they're called to wait on God, sometimes decades, sometimes their entire lives, never seeing the end. Read Hebrews 11 if you want to see more of this. But in the forthcoming verses, Luke tells us that they spent a lot of time together too. Not simply just hanging out, but as we talked about a few weeks ago with fellowship, praying, encouraging one another, seeking the Spirit, helping to edify one another in their faith and in followership of Jesus. A pastor in the UK, this guy named Pete Grieg, I think it's Grieg, uh, I actually don't know it apparently, Grieg or Greg, he wrote in a book on prayer, waiting on God, according to Scripture, is not a passive, vacuous state, but rather an active process of asking, seeking, and engaging with his spirit. We kind of think, for me, because I am in this impatient person and I am this person that's more inclined to not depend on God, but be more independent and, and not depend on others, but more, if they're not going to do it, well, fine, I'll go do it, and let's just go do it right now. Once it's in my head, I, I'm set on it. To do this, man, it is a kick all over my body. Um, it's just, it's a tough call. It's a tough challenge for me. And to do this, in particular sometimes with other people in community, in the life of the church, 
man, we, we have those people in the church that are just more dependent on God. They're waiting. They're able to depend and wait and listen, sometimes days, weeks, years. And we need those people. But man, I'll be honest, they can frustrate me because I'm like, you're just using that as a cop-out. But no, no, no. Peter's saying, no, this is a season, an active process that asking, seeking, engaging, waiting on the Spirit, depending on the Spirit. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he writes, wait on the Lord is a constant refrain in the Psalms. And it's a necessary word, for God often keeps us waiting. He's not in such a hurry as we are. And it's not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will come. That's a hard one at the end. When in doubt, do nothing but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will come. More specifically, what does this look like for us as a body of believers? So this, we've been talking a little bit more individually, but what does this look like for us as a church and as Jesus followers who make up a local church here called LifeBridge? Um, I don't know about you, but for me, when it feels like there's this momentous uh, time, this pivotal moment in my life where I feel like I've, a decision is kind of on the table, you're like just approaching the curve like a roller coaster that's just like... Have we reached the peak? Okay, are we finally going to... And, and it can be paralyzing. It can grip you. It can stop me right in my tracks. But, can, but for me, I know it can also be an excuse. I can use it as a reason to not do anything for the kingdom. I can say, well, I'll pray about it. And unless God's like slaps me across the face and says, yeah, go do that. I'll be like, well, God didn't tell me to. It's a good cop out. Um, we do have a lot of things that God told us to do. So, but for me, I can default to, well, I'm not hearing that from God, so I'm going to wait. That's the reverse side of this. Francis Chan writes a bit about this for the church. He says, most of us use, quote-unquote, I'm waiting for God to reveal his calling on my life as a means of avoiding action. Did you hear God calling you to sit in front of the television yesterday? Or to go on your last vacation or exercise this morning? Probably not. You still did it, though. The point isn't that vacations or exercise are wrong, but that we are quick to rationalize our entertainment and priorities, yet are slow to commit to serving God. I think this comes from, stems from, in particular, in the Western church, we've divorced spiritual from physical but I think everything is spiritual. Everything we do is spiritual. It has some sort of spiritual component to it. That is a part of heaven coming here and now, the kingdom overlapping with this age here and now, the age of the spirit that we see unfold in the book of Acts. Ultimately, for the Jesus follower and for us who gather as a church under the banner of Christ, when we're stuck in, a, in and facing a season that demands us to wait on God, why are we called to wait? 
Why are we called to wait? And why can we wait? Uh, I'll say this, because God waited for us. Throughout redemptive history, God has called us. God's called his people. God's waited and waited on us. He's waited for us to turn back. Generation after generation, even if, if you're like me, sometimes weekly, daily, there's still things that are in my life, in my soul, in my bones, that I am set against God. And the Spirit is calling me, challenging me, pulling me back, making me more like Jesus. God's waiting. God is patient with us. We wait because he waited for us. And in Jesus, ultimately, we see waiting too, right? Jesus waited for the Father's timing to do what he was called to do. But more importantly, we see Jesus awaiting his death on the cross. You think Jesus didn't want the weekend to be over? That Easter weekend? You think Jesus didn't want to numb the pain? Take something to just, okay, fine, I'll do it, but just knock me out. You think Jesus didn't want to skip ahead or at least put it on 1.5 speed like we do with like audiobooks we have to get through or podcasts we have to get through or something? Yet Jesus patiently endured Holy Week, culminating in a long, dark, agonizing Good Friday. We wait for God because over and over again, God has shown us that this timing, that his timing is better than ours. His timing is better than ours. But let us not also think and default to waiting as an excuse for inaction. That's why we do this together. That's why we do life in community. Because some of us are really good waiters. We're really patient, sometimes to a fault. And some of us are really good action. Let's go, let's go, let's go. But sometimes that can be reckless because we haven't thought through some things or prayed through or, or sought whether or not this is what God wants for us. A pivotal point for this is you'll see later on in Acts 13 when the early church is starting to send out their first church planters, Saul and Barnabas, Saul who becomes Paul. They're waiting and fasting and going through this all together, seeking the Spirit's leading as to what we do next as a church. So it is this together. It's this beautiful blend of the diversity of, of ways that God has intricately created us, but he's weaving us together, some of us more doers going for it, and some of us more dependent, some of us more attuned to God's spirit, God's voice. We need us all together to help us grow together. Well, before I wrap up, what's a practice from the way of Jesus that can help us this week as we endeavor to wait, to be patient in our lives? And you can incorporate this throughout your lives. This is a great spiritual practice. Um, it's called the practice of slowing. I've shared it before, I think, a while back. The practice of slowing. It sounds like a, an interesting spiritual practice. You're like fasting, prayer, all these different things. And it's like slowing. Oh, um, essentially, it, it looks like intentionally when you're feeling your desire, your inclination to go, 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 to go fast, to switch lanes. We did this this morning. <laughs> a car going 33 on, on a 35, and we're like, go around them. Go around. This is ridiculous. I can't wait. Um, 
wait, go 33. Go 33. Or if it's that checkout line's faster, that lady, you're counting, you're like, okay, but they, that line's shorter, but that card up there, they're stocking up for like the winter. We're not going to that line. So, and you're like, when, when I was with my mom, I'd be like, okay, count the items. How many do they have? How many do they have? Do they have anything down low? Because it's like, if they've got to pull the water cases up, that's too much. You know, it's going to take some time. Do they look physically capable to bring it up and back and back? Yeah, it's just, you got to do this math in your head. It's quick. No, just wait. What is a couple minutes? Maybe it's not ordering ahead. Maybe it is going inside and standing in line at the coffee shop or the restaurant. Crazy, right? Henry Nouwen, on waiting, he wrote, waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. Now, spiritual practices, as we've discussed before, are not means to earn your place before God. But they are means by which we bec- that the Spirit can use and does use to help us become more and more like Jesus and more and more attuned to the voice of God. So just like uh, a practice in a sports or for a musician, um, Christians, we've we kind of gotten away, in particular Protestantism, a, a bit away from practices because it gets too tied up with workspace. We've got to do these things so we can do, get this. It's like, well, no, no, no. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. However, we are to follow and practice the way of Jesus. We are to follow his living and leading. And so this practice in particular, this practice of slowing, when you're feeling your body, when you're feeling your blood pulse, yeah, listen to your body, listen to your soul, reflect on your thoughts. These things are a way for us to be, um, become attuned to the entire being that God has made us to be. We're not just a soul. We are mind, body, and soul. So man, when you feel your body, when, you, when you're like tapping, I think, I think you got to be patient. God's going to call you to be patient, right? Because no longer are you thinking and le- leading out of uh, your followership of Jesus, right? You're letting your intensity, your anxiety, whatever it may be, dictate the way you live. Now, slowing is a way to press pause, even for a minute, and in that moment, just say a prayer, God, help me wait on you. Help me be here. Help me be patient as you've called us to be. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a virtue. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And it's a, it's a virtue and a fruit of the Spirit that our culture definitely needs, even in our rural area. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. 
Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks. Thank you.